for those of you I haven't met, my name is Art Turner, and I'm from the uh, Smart Road Congregation in Lee Summit. Technology is behind me. <laughs> Slow sometimes. What we're going to discuss this morning is personal accountability and self-discipline. <clears throat> we will define personal accountability, what it means and how your personal and congregational accountability affects the Lord's Church. And we will finish our thoughts with some practical day-to-day -day steps that we can take to improve our self-discipline so we can achieve the goals, the God's will in our life. And there's one in particular that we're going to spend a lot of time on, and uh, I think we'll hopefully we'll get a better understanding of personal accountability and self-discipline. <clears throat> Webster defines uh, accountability as an obligation or willingness to accept responsibility or account for one's actions. As we watch the news today, uh, it appears as if no one wants to be accountable for anything. In the Benghazi attack on September 11, 2012, four Americans died. Four years later, nobody has been held accountable for those deaths. According to an article written in November 2015 by the Pew Research Center, there are 11 million illegal immigrants in America. Why? Because no one is being held accountable for our unsecured borders. Sadly, leaders in the churches of America are not excluded from this tragic failure to hold people accountable. Pastors, leaders of churches are leading immoral, sinful lives. The crime of molesting children has been plaguing the Catholic Church for years. God will certainly hold them accountable in the judgment, but where is the personal accountability today? <clears throat> if you'll open your books to 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, <clears throat> we'll look at a perfect example of a lack of accountability in the church at Corinth. <clears throat> The lack of accountability in individuals and in the church as a whole is not a new problem. In 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us about the lack of personal accountability by one of the members who was living in sin and a congregational lack of accountability because they didn't hold him accountable for his sin. In verse 1, Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans, those who are living in the world in sin, even they don't tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Well, Paul is shocked that this sin exists and that that sexual immorality is known outside the church. Everybody knows about it. On the one hand, this man has no personal accountability. He hasn't attempted to rectify his sin. He hasn't changed his behavior. He has no personal accountability for the way he's living. 
On the other hand, the congregation has failed this church member because they have not held him accountable for his immoral behavior. And the reason they haven't is in verse 2. Paul says, you are proud. You're full of pride. Because of their pride, they have rationalized or minimalized, minimalized, they made a little thing out of his sin. <laughs> the sin this man is guilty of was having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And that was condemned all the way back into Leviticus, the 18th chapter. The penalty for that was death. And even under the Roman civil law, which the church was living under at that time, it was illegal. So why would they even let this go on in the church? It was because the congregation was full of pride. They were so arrogant and sinful themselves that they excused this wickedness right in amongst them. <clears throat> what would have been the appropriate action for the congregation? Well, verse 4 says, <clears throat> When you are assembled, in other words, when they're all together as a congregation, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. It's the responsibility of the congregation to hold this man accountable for his behavior and to put him outside the church to live in the world where he's actually going to be more comfortable in his sin. The hope is, though, that by withdrawing from this man, they will actually save his soul, that he will correct his behavior, that he will want to make a change in his life to get back with the Lord. In his second letter to Corinth, in chapter 2, Paul is commending the congregation for taking the action he recommended. Now, Paul doesn't specifically mention this man in the second letter, but we're assuming that that's who he's referring to when he says to the church that he's glad they took the action to correct this sin. Verse 6, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Holding the man accountable for his sin has worked. He's obviously changed. He corrected his sinful behavior. Verse 7, now... Now that he's changed, now that he's back with the saints, now you, congregation, ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love to him. That's Paul's holding the congregation accountable to treat this man fairly, gently, and kindly with love. The man has shown personal accountability because he changed. He got out of that sinful situation, and now he's living for the Lord. <clears throat> In verse 9, it's interesting, Paul says, another reason I wrote to you the first letter was to see if you as a congregation would stand the test and be obedient in everything. 
So the congregation did stand the test. They overcame their pride. They overcame that situation, and they did the right thing for the man by withdrawing from him, and it, the situation was corrected. So they saved his soul. So when I give a lesson, I always like to give practical applications, things that we can use tomorrow on Monday. So I made a short list that we can take to have a greater personal accountability as a Christian. Step one is to acknowledge we all sin. Now I know we've all been saved and we've all been forgiven of our sin when we were baptized, but we all sin. First John 1 John 1.8 says, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But my experience is that all Christians, everybody, tries to deceive themselves or rationalize their self. They try to make sin not a big issue in their lives. We, we attempt to justify our behavior, blaming it on our parents, blaming it on our companions, blaming it on situations, even blaming it on a lack of self-discipline. But the Lord considers all sin the same. There's no little white lie. Sin is a big deal to the Lord. In Proverbs, the sixth chapter, we have a whole list of sins. <clears throat> Haughty eyes, that means a proud person, somebody that looks down on other people. He thinks he's better than other people. A lying tongue, there it is, those little lies that we seem to leak out of us. God hates lying because number three is murder. He puts it right in the same list with murder. Now, none of us would go out and murder anybody, but would, do we have a problem lying, making things sound a little bit better than what they really are? A heart that desire, um, devises wicked plans, feet that rush into evil, false witness, people that stir up conflict, those are all things that God hates. There are no little sins in God's eyes, and so we should never attempt to rationalize our sin. So step one in having greater accountability is to acknowledge that we have sin. That's what verse 8 says. But the good news in verse, is in verse 9. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. We must acknowledge to ourselves as much as anyone that we do sin. And as sinners, we need to confess those sins to the Lord and he will forgive us. After eating from the fruit, the forbidden fruit in, in the Garden of Eden, did God came into the garden and he found Adam and Eve hiding and he said to them, what have you done? And Adam said, well, my wife gave me that. She tempted me with that fruit. Was he confessing his sin? 
to the Lord? No. Eve said, well, that, that snake Satan made me eat that fruit. Was she confessing that, that she had done something wrong? No. When Cain killed his brother, he said, am I my brother's keeper? Was he confessing his sin? No. And that's the tendency we all have. We want to overlook it. We want to minimize it. Well, personal accountability carries with it the responsibility of us acknowledging we have sin and confessing that sin to the Lord. If we read the entire uh, verse 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, that's step three in my little list of how to have better personal accountability. <clears throat> step three is making continual progress in our sanctification, which means to become holy. So we're going to acknowledge we're sinners, we're going to confess that to the Lord, and we're going to continue to make progress in that lifelong endeavor to become more holy. It's an ongoing process. And it's the will of God. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that each of you should learn, that's a key word, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. It is God's will that we be sanctified, that we be holy. And one of the key parts of sanctification is to learn to control ourselves. That is part of that process. That's part of our growing. That's part of our maturing. <clears throat> we need to learn how to live a pure and holy life. Well, in order to do that, we need to have self-discipline. And that's the second part of my topic. The definition of self-discipline is the ability to control one's feelings and overcome one's weaknesses. Our emotions, our feelings, is what drives most of our decisions. People that are overweight, they're usually overweight because of their, they can't control their emotions, their feelings. Um, that they just, matter of fact, I've done a lot of research on addiction. Addiction is almost always a lack of control of a person's emotions. They have a trigger that drives them to their addiction whether it's drugs, alcohol, or food. All of those things are stimulated by some trigger, uh, and they just can't control that. <clears throat> but God says that we need to control, learn to control 
those emotions in our own lives so that we can be pure. Let me read to you from Genesis, the fourth chapter, where Abel <clears throat> took one of his uh, best animals from his herd and he sacrificed it to the Lord. And it says the Lord accepted his sacrifice. He was pleased with that sacrifice. His brother Cain brought a sacrifice from his garden and the Lord was not pleased. He did not accept that. And in verse five of chapter four of Genesis, it says, Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Cain had an emotional reaction to the fact that his sacrifice was not acceptable to the Lord. And his feelings were hurt. He was very angry and he was depressed. In verse seven, God said to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, if you'd done the right thing, Cain, I would have been pleased with your sacrifice too. But you did the wrong thing, and I'm not pleased. Then listen to God's warning to Cain. Remember, Cain is very angry, and his countenance has fallen. And God tells him, if you do not change your attitude, if you don't rectify your feelings, your emotions, this is what God warns Cain. Sin is crouching at the door. I think maybe I'm behind on my slides here. Yeah. Sin is crouching at the door because of your attitude, because of your emotional reaction to the fact that you made the wrong sacrifice. God says, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to have you. And here's the key part of that. You must rule over it. You must rule over it. God's saying that to Cain and he says it to us. You must rule over sin. So we're going to have to develop self-discipline if we're going to achieve God's will in our life, being sanctification, being holy. Now as Christians, we occasionally do sin. You don't have to be sinless to be a Christian. But you do have to live with the goal of sanctification and a growing self-discipline by learning to control your emotions and your reactions, your feelings, is the key to fulfilling God's will for your life. Sanctification is a continual progress of becoming more and more and more holy. It's not a one-time event, it's a lifelong endeavor. <clears throat> So, I like lists. Let's make a list on how we can improve our self-discipline. <clears throat> the first one is personal evaluation. Romans 12 says, I appeal to you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, 
which is your reasonable service. This is God's will for our life, sanctification. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, see we have to do some testing, we have to do some personal evaluation. By testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If you develop a desire for personal evaluation, evaluating your behavior, evaluating your values, evaluating your decisions, it will transform your life. But most of us don't pay enough attention, don't have enough interest in evaluating ourselves personally that we, we just don't do that. There are many passages that will help you evaluate your life. Genesis 5 <clears throat> is one of those. Verse 16 says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Then Paul gives a list of sins. I'm not going to read them because part of my um, desire for you is for you to realize that if you're going to be sanctified, you can't keep focusing on your sin. You can't keep focusing on what's behind. You've got to keep focusing on where you want to go. So we're going to skip the, the sin list, and we're going to jump down to where he lists the um, good things that we should be desiring. And that's the fruits of the Spirit. It was interesting to me that in that list is self-control, self-discipline. That is part of the things that we want to be working at uh, for our sanctification. We have to have control over our bodies. We need to evaluate ourselves and make sure that we're adding those things to our life and that we are demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, in our endeavor in to become more sanctified. <clears throat> so personal evaluation is the first one. Second, I would encourage you, uh, if you're going to develop self-discipline, to have accountability partners. <clears throat> An accountability partner is someone who uh, is desirous of helping others and they uh, will help you because they love you. They should be a person that you respect, someone you trust, people who will support and encourage you, people who will not condemn you no matter what sins you struggle with. More importantly, they should be people that you can confide in and know without a doubt that what is said to them will be kept in strict confidence, not shared with anyone. Breaking confidentiality will destroy an accountability relationship. 
Now, accountability partners is not a new idea. It's a very biblical concept. James 5.16 says, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Ecclesiastes 4 says, two are better than one, for if they fall, the one will lift his fellow up, but woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Hebrews 3 says, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Proverbs 27, iron sharpeneth, sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. 2 Corinthians 1, the, Lord, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted by God. The, the Bible clearly shows us that God never meant for us to walk alone. Even Jesus had a group of 12 to support him. And in that 12, he had three that were very special, that he confided in. He shared special thoughts and feelings with. That's our example of accountability partners. Now, accountability partners cannot be the same, uh, cannot be, always has to be the same sex. They can't be a man and a woman. That won't work. Women just don't understand us. And we don't understand women. There are different thought processes, desires, and needs. <clears throat> we just will never understand the opposite sex. And so accountability partners are of the same sex that you are. Accountability partners get together at least once a week. Any program, addiction program that uh, you would go through, they encourage weekly get-togethers with your partner. Sometimes when people are struggling, you have to be with that person more than once a week. They need you when they need you. <clears throat> You should be available to support, encourage, and pray with each other if you are struggling to avoid sin. If you're tempted, if you're falling, if you know that you're close, you need to call your accountability partner. Point B in choosing an accountability partner is to look for someone who is qualified to confront the sin you are tempted with and to support you gently. In other words, they'll not abuse you for your sin. They'll not beat you up when you fall off the wagon, so to speak. Let me illustrate accountability <clears throat> with Galatians, the sixth chapter. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, that is the first qualifier to an accountability partner. They have to be 
spiritual. They have to, you have to be able to see that the Spirit is leading their lives. The second qualifier is that the partner can help you with gentleness. So those which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, gentleness, considering yourselves lest you also be tempted. <clears throat> Verse 2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Step three in my list is to journal your sanctification process. Journaling is always recommended in uh, addiction programs. And I'm using that because I think this falls right in line with what they usually teach you in, in those programs. <clears throat> when you journal for the process of becoming more sanctified, you don't write down your failures. You don't want to have a journal full of sins. What you write down is your successes. And that's where you keep getting encouragement from reading your own journal, is that you see you have been making progress. Of course you're going to have those days where it doesn't go like you wanted it to but you're gonna be able to read your successes in your journal. I have a suggestion, and that is Peter, 2 Peter, the, fifth, um, the first chapter, gives a whole list of virtues there, things that we should be adding to our faith. I would have a, a process of writing in my journal on a daily basis how I'm succeeding in adding those things to my life how I'm becoming more sanctified using this list. So I would start out with faith at the top of my first page. And I would study all the passages, write down those that really impressed me on, on faith, what it means, what it means to me personally. And I would develop a real feeling, a real uh, attachment to what the word faith means for my life. When you have a handle on that, I would go to a new page and write virtue at the top of that page, and I would get a clear understanding of what adding faith to adding virtue to my faith means. And this is a journal that you're going to be processing through and uh, being able to help yourself move towards sanctification. And as you go through this list, knowledge would be the next page, self-control, self-discipline is... Um, a process. You're, you're going to have to learn these things. You're going to have to research them. You're going to have to de develop your thoughts about them, and you're going to have to apply those to your life. Personal accountability and self-discipline are things that are essential for your success as a Christian. And you need to spend a lot of time developing those in your life. It's a maturing process. It's a lifelong process. But we can sum it up in this one verse. 
For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. <clears throat> 